each of these previously conflicting elements, democracy, you know, democratic states, and the market need to interpenetrate into the deepest parts of the other in order for the project of the other to be successful on its own terms. All right. Welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. I am Oshan Jarrow, and I'm really excited to release uh, this episode today. Over the past few episodes and the next few to come, I'm speaking with economists about how we can redesign our lives by redesigning our economy. So this means taxes, it means policy proposals, and it means really digging into how the economic design of society has so much to do with how we spend our time, how we live our lives, and the pathways and trajectories of human development that occur as we live within society. And this calls for imagination and creativity and rigor applied to the dry domain of economic policy. And this is why I'm so excited to share this conversation today. Uh, my guest is Glenn Weil. Glenn is the co-author of the book Radical Markets. He is the founder of the Radical Exchange Movement. He has a PhD in economics from Princeton. And in his spare time, he works as Microsoft's chief technology, political economist, and social technologist, which is acronymed as Octopest. In our conversation, we explore how social technologies and economic institutions shape our physical, mental, and social lives, the myth of individualism, the myth of the state, and the true blurred interdependence between the two. We explore how radical exchange and the kind of basket of, of policies they're proposing compare and contrast with folks like Thomas Piketty's vision of progressive taxation in the 21st century. We explore how to design markets beyond neoliberalism for becoming mechanisms of complexity as opposed to concentrating wealth and power. And we talk about why Glenn no longer supports uh, basic income, uh, the role of art in creating a movement, and a lot more. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to help the project, you can share your favorite episodes on social media or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, both of which help new listeners find the show. Uh, and in these early stages of the podcast, this is really the most important thing, right? Finding ways to expose the podcast to people who might be interested in this kind of thing. And to stay up to date with new episode releases, you can join my newsletter. Or if you really want to uh, directly support the project, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash where even a monthly donation of $1 goes a long way towards helping me improve the audio and production quality and spend more time doing research and growing the project. You can find links to all of these things from the website. That's www.musingmind.org. And uh, that's it. All right, here is my conversation with Glenn Weil. So I'm thinking maybe a, a good place to start for for people who might not be familiar with your work or with the Radical Exchange platform, right? If you could give a brief idea just of, of who you are and what you do, but 
more more broadly and I think more importantly, what the persistent questions and interests are that keep showing up in, in the different projects and work that you do, right? These these things that you keep returning to that the themes that your work is kind of wrestling with. Yeah, absolutely. So radical exchange is a movement that aims to apply the same sorts of technological approaches that are used to advance our physical and communications technologies to the way that we organize ourselves as a society. Einstein once said that if the way we organize ourselves had advanced as much as the way that uh, you know our physical technologies have, we would all have carefree and easy lives. But that as it is, uh, we've put razor blades into the hands of three-year-old children. <laughs> and I think that what we're trying to do is help those uh, organizational technologies catch up with the ways uh, that, that we have given ourselves power. And some of the key questions that come up are, what are the most important elements of the social lives that we have in informal settings that are missed in the ways that we interact with each other on large Mm. scales. So people think about things like democracy. They say democracy works well in small communities, but it's really hard on a large scale. What exactly is it about our in-person interactions that are missing at a large scale? You could have said the same thing if you wanted to talk about radio versus television. If you'd said, what's the most important thing that's missing from radio that we have in in in-person interactions, people might have said, visual Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, and that's what um, led to the development of television. And we're trying to do the same thing for things like democracy, or how we manage social value. Mm, So it's almost like you're increasing the resolution of these kind of like social technologies. Exactly. And so, you know, we have to reflect on what it is that's missing, right? Right. And you could do the same thing about television, what's missing from television? Well, that's what's leading to virtual reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in the same way, we're trying to do that for you know the economy and and democracy. That's that's interesting, and and it's so difficult, I think, because on one hand, right where we're sitting now, when we ask what's missing from the radio, we can kind of Im- immediately think about visual. But when you're in the position, right, where where you're asking, well, what's missing missing from how we currently do things? It's so difficult to make that leap to kind of imagine uh, what is not present, right? How, how have you kind of how do how do you approach that that imaginative component? Well, I think that, you know, history is a great help. If you look to the origins of um, the systems we currently have at what those folks were trying to achieve when they were first instituted or what the world looked like before those formal Mm -hmm. systems came into existence, that's often helpful because often our technologies shape our self-understanding. So a lot of people think of their eyes Mm -hmm. by analogy to a camera. They think we get a bunch of images but they don't think about what was our vision like prior to, or, or what, what is our vision really like, you know, before we think about, I mean, you can look at children, you can look at civilizations that don't, but, but often stepping yeah, right. to, to really improve technology actually requires maybe surprisingly sort of thinking about a pre-technological state, because that is what shows you what might be missing from our current technology. I, I love that. I want to highlight what you said there, that our, our technologies shape our self-understanding, right? That's that's such a persistent theme in, in kind of the, the conversations I've been having is looking at how, 
Mm. Even I don't know which which is broader than the other, but the ways that our socioeconomic institutions kind of create that environment in which uh, human development occurs and in which psychologies take shape. Um, yeah, I think that that's a great, you know, that, that's really the analogy we're trying to draw is that just as our technologies shape how we see and hear the world, our social institutions shape the way we imagine our social relations, which are not, in fact, what we think of them as, you know? Right, right. Yeah, so there's been there's been a kind of historical narrative um, emerging across the past few conversations I've had, and I think they frame radical exchange really nicely. So I want to kind of boil that down and then ask you to to well, comment. You're good at choosing your guests, then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, boiling it very briefly, right? Basically, coming out of World War II, we had this kind of period of Keynesian economics that ran until about the early '70s, right? And then there was another kind of transition point where we moved into what's the neoliberal period. So a different form of capitalism with different, uh, different ethos behind it. And some might say that ran until the 2008 financial crash. Some might say we're still kind of following in that, you know, in that vein. But I think that we've definitely since 08 have entered this new space that is kind of yet undefined, right? It's not clear what's what the next kind of label or phase is. But one thing that does distinguish it, I think, from the neoliberal period is that there's this resurgent energy, right? Some A, a return of, uh, of radicalism, something that Frederick Jameson, I think, would call the utopian impulse. And we've also kind of been turning away from this idea of top-heavy capital accumulation as that ultimate social virtue that everything else kind of just falls behind. So, as we distance ourselves from yeah. the economic situation of the past 50 years, and we have this kind of flurry of new ideas, I wanted to ask you how radical exchange b- both critiques and learns from the past 50 years, right? Because it's very easy, at least in, in my filter bubbles, to just trash neoliberalism, but I don't think that gives it enough credit. So I wanted to ask, what did we learn from that period, right? But what different directions also are you imagining for the whole kind of trajectory of evolution? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, there was a lot that neoliberalism got right. It got right um, the fundamental problems with the nation state as a way of organizing ourselves and the constraints that that put uh, on justice, uh, by the mm-hmm. way, as much as it put on freedom or anything like that. I mean, in the middle part of the 20th century, the inequality across countries was the highest that it's ever reached. And overall inequality in the world was also, therefore, the highest that's been recorded. Mm. So, you know, people talk about the great golden age of the 1940s and, you know, 50s, 60s. But this was a golden age for a very, very small fraction of the world's population. And I think that it was that that generated, to a large extent, the Cold War and the attraction of communism was the hatred that so much of the world felt of and resentment of the colonially dominant powers Mm. and neoliberalism saw the way in which trade offered an opportunity for that to begin to equalize. And and it's that that gave the opening to China. So that emphasis on order beyond the nation state was absolutely uh, critical. However, it did it in a way that was about tearing down the nation state rather than about building up other things around it. And I think that that was a huge mistake. Mm. And that is really what uh, radical exchange is trying to figure out, a form of liberalism that is not based on 
atomized individualism, but that understands that the individual is actually the outgrowth of diverse, complex social organization, rather than uh, about tearing down the organizations that constrain the individual. Mm. Yeah, it, it almost feels like uh, it's attempting a synthesis between the kind of Keynesian period of imposing a top-down direction or kind of, uh, you know, guiding the economy from that vantage point, and then the kind of Hayek comes along and neoliberalism goes the exact opposite direction, tries to take all power from the state, put it directly in markets. And now it seems as if we're trying to bring together this this use of markets as kind of decentralized information processing technologies, but kind of within this this partnership rather than an aversion to the kind of democratic and and government uh, institutions that that create the frames for markets, right? Well, I I think... um to a large extent, you know, third way folks, you know, the Tony Blairs and Bill Clintons of the world would have used a similar rhetoric. Mm. Um, what I think is critical to what radical exchange is trying to do is that we're trying to get more of both. We're trying to say that you can actually have more markets by realizing that markets can only exist socially. Mm. And we're trying to get more democracy by understanding that democracy is only fully realized when embedded with markets. So that's the core of it, is, is to realize that each of these previously conflicting elements, democracy, you know, democratic states, and the market, need to interpenetrate into the deepest parts of the other in order for the project of the other to be successful on its own terms. Mm. Uh, so it, you know, the, a true syncretism, a true Hegelian synthesis doesn't take one thing and um, just compromise with the other, but rather figure out how you can achieve more of each one's values by embracing the values of the other. Mm, yeah, that's excellent. And and another way that, I, that I've been trying to make sense of, of this vision that, that Radical Exchange is working with. Um, and I wanted to ask you to do a bit of comparing and contrasting with uh, what we might call the distributional approach. And, and by that, I mean the work of Thomas Piketty and, and Emmanuel Says and Gabriel Zuckman, who are developing this kind of broad spectrum, progressive taxation um, adapted to the 21st century. Because I, there's an interesting resonance between Radical Exchange and the distributional approach where both seem on a, in a broad sense to be trying to reorient the capital system towards uh, redistributing excessive wealth, funding public goods, establishing more flexible forms of property ownership, and provisioning some kind of social dividend. But the ways in which you approach it are totally different, right? Where where they think what I think they take what I think you might call a, a statist approach. You seem to embrace more of this idea of mechanism design or trying to operate on on the incentive structure of environments so that outcomes arise organically rather than top down. So I wanted to ask you what you see in kind of similarities and differences between this progressive taxation approach and, and more what you have in mind. Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I think about it is that Zuckman et al. fundamentally have a vision where like in al almost all standard economics, there is the market and there is the state. Now they have a view that the state should be larger, should be doing more, et cetera. But their fundamental worldview and all their models are models of the state and the atomized individual. 
My view fundamentally is that there is no such thing as the atomized individual, mm. nor is there such a thing as the state. What there are is a complex web of different social organizations and that precisely the problem that we face and the source of not just the inequality, but more deeply the sense that our agency is fleeing away from us and is being concentrated in forces we don't understand comes from the fact that we have not given either power on the one hand or democratic accountability to that diverse range of other organizations. And so by focusing on the market versus the state, it obscures the possibility of us actually having the sort of diverse and accountable institutions that we need in order for the individual to even be possible. So, you know, in, in our vision, rather than there being a dividend paid out by a government, there are a bunch of different organizations, each of which has common property, which creates an environment in which no individual is left to fend for herself, but not because there is one overarching state taking care of them, but because people live embedded into a diverse range of communities. Mm. Um, where their approach would have the government have to account for all these assets, tax everyone, keep track of everything in a likely impossible enforcement job. Uh, our system actually has communities enforcing taxes effectively in the same way that in the most successful countries in the world, there aren't a ton of police. What mm. there are is a high level of social trust and a highly engaged citizenry that has their eyes constantly on the street to enforce against criminal activity. And politically, their system is very clearly of the left, mm. whereas ours appeals equally to people on the right and the left is a way of more completely achieving markets and of decreasing the role of the state. And at the same time, having democracy pervade all of the economic institutions from which it's currently absent. Yeah. I, it's interesting because each approach faces a unique challenge, right? You point out the progressive taxation approach is very intimately associated with the progressive left. Um, and so, you know, they have a very traditional problem of, of dealing with a, a partisan debate, whereas it, it seems that nobody knows how to categorize radical exchange, right? And this is, that's a really great virtue. I was having dinner with a friend recently, and he said, you know, it's it's those ideas that confuse everybody, right? That, that create these kind of really interesting spaces for something to happen. Um, but, but I wonder... The, the thing about the progressive taxation is that it's familiar, right? In, in many ways, we're drawing upon the 20th century, which is both um, the familiarity is great, but it's also drawn a lot of critique for being a kind of nostalgic view as opposed to an innovation. But do you think that if, if we wind up going that way in this kind of familiar direction um, and progressive taxation becomes that leverage point that leads to more funding good, uh, more public goods and these kinds of things, do you think that that creates an environment where your ideas uh, become more kind of widely receptive? Or do you think that's kind of going down a direction that, that is, is going to make it more difficult to, to kind of grapple with your ideas? Well, I think that what is most critical to have change is that people raise the temperature sufficiently that you can get things happening. You know, if you want to have steel get strong, it needs to 
be heated up to a temperature that allows what's called annealing to take place. Mm -hmm. And then you need to cool it down. Now, if you cool it up, heat it up too hot, you get an explosion. So it's a careful balancing act. But overall, I think that a lot of the populist statist movements that we've seen, which I am not a fellow traveler of, but I do think that they can create the conditions in which people feel the need to fundamentally reconsider the current equilibrium. So I applaud them for that, even as I try to articulate a vision that differs from them in important ways and that tends to more often as a political matter, make common cause with the political center, which uh, has a lot of problems and which I think has really failed us in many ways. And yet from sort of a political positioning perspective, I think is closer to where we are. Yeah, it's really interesting you bring up the annealing metaphor. This might be a little tangential, but I was just reading a paper, uh, a neuroscience paper, where they they were developing a kind of neural annealing model of the brain where, so, you know, it's the same metaphor that in any, they used metallurgy as the example where, you know, to work with a metal, you heat it up to a certain degree where it becomes more malleable and then you kind of do the shaping and, and it lets out kind of stress and pressure that accumulated in the system and then it kind of sets back down. Um, and so in the brain, they were, they were likening it where the brain is a kind of system that needs regular annealing processes to release built up pressure. Um, and then it, it settles down into more kind of, uh, efficient regulation systems. Well, it's interesting because I got that, um, analogy from a mixture of computer science where that's used for, uh, there's an algorithm called simulated annealing mm. that, uh, sort of introduces a certain amount of randomness and then sort of gr- gradually cools that down. And, um, a great book called leadership on the line, which is just like a standard business type book, but it talks about the idea that to be an adaptive leader, you actually sometimes need to sort of like pound on the table in a crazy way, <laughs> just to like, even, even if it's completely unproductive, just to get people to realize that there's a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And then you need to be a consensual leader who, you know, cools things down and, and so forth. So yeah. it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite interesting how many different domains this type of logic arises in. Right. It's, and, and yeah, maybe um, kind of tying that back towards, towards the economics, there's another pretty interesting tension, uh, or not tension, but kind of uh, interaction that I keep trying to wrap my head around in, in the kind of radical exchange uh, space and as it relates to progressive taxation. And that's this, this interesting dynamic between decommodification and the expansion uh, of markets, right? Because traditionally, uh, the progressive left has been very um, enamored with this uh, this term decommodification and, and specifically in kind of the, the basic domains of life, right? The idea of for example, taking public public ownership of healthcare or even electricity grids, right? With the the idea is to kind of remove market forces as the operative logic to provide them to everyone's so on. And, and so radical exchange kind of goes a totally opposite direction, right? Where you're you're certainly not looking to decommodify, you're you're expanding markets and introducing them even in places they haven't previously been. Um, and yet the revenues in that model are being funneled into things like a social dividend, into things like a public good, uh, redistributing wealth, which are kind of the hallmarks of that uh, decommodification approach, right? So it, it's a really interesting dynamic where you're almost achieving the outcome by going the opposite direction. So I wanted to ask you 
to speak to that tension at all, to, to what the residents and, and also, also these kind of divergence points between that idea of decommodification and, and the approach of, of expanding markets? Well, so the first thing I would say is I do view radical exchange very much in the lens of decommodification. And if you take our, you know, one of our most canonical ideas, this idea that things should kind of constantly be up for auction where the value from the auction is returned to the public. Um, I actually view that as in many ways, the essence of decommodification. Hmm. And I know that sounds like a paradox, but the reason is that um, what is it for something to be a commodity? So for something to be a commodity, that literally means that it is interchangeable with other things and produced for the purpose of earning a profit on the market, right? That's, that's, that's Carl Polanyi's mm-hmm. definition of commodity, right? Yeah. Um, and it is precisely in that type of an auction system in which that does no, no longer occurs. Because to the extent that you produce something in the aims of earning a profit, that profit is returned to the public. So you have no incentive ever to do anything for any reason other than your own uh, uh, value. So it, it quite literally achieves that, that goal. It removes the element of exchange value and only allows for uh, use value. Mm. Um, and on the other hand, everything that is expressed within the system is use value. So when people bid into the system, what they express is their subjective value for using the thing rather than their expected returns for earning it on the market. So ironically, actually by putting prices into everything, by actually expressing that use value in dollars, it allows use value rather than exchange value to become the central thing within society. So where this the standard approach says, okay, let's subtract exchange value. They say, no, let's add use value and have use value overtake exchange value. So I, I, I think that that's a, um, a key feature of the approach is to say, let's actually lean into and make more powerful our technologies in order to make them more true to a pre-technological world rather than subtracting our existing technologies because the reality is that unless you build something new in its place, it won't be able to compete with existing formal systems. Mm-hmm. I th- one of the, I think, kind of important flex points in, in thinking about all this is, is that the markets you're talking about are, are not necessarily the markets as we know them today, right? One of, one of the, the kind of aims of decommodification, I think, it's ultimately about time, right? The, the people who are really pushing this button is about... Uh, increasing the balance of time in which we don't have to spend in these kind of commodified life forms. So I I wonder when you think about kind of the markets you're talking about versus the markets we we know today, how would it, would it differ in in a future where um, your policies are implemented to be right? Cause one, one way to read it is that we're going to make markets be everywhere, right? Everything is a market, but you're really changing this notion from ownership to use. So how should we change the way we're thinking about what it means to have a, a market so fully integrated with society? I mean, I think it bears a lot of relation to Buddhism because Buddhism, you know, is a, a, a philosophical outlook or religion in which we recognize that there is no self, that everything sort of flows and that we occupy a point in space. We, we use some uh, thing, but we, it is not fundamentally ours and that there is no um, 
Adam called us in the first place, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can imagine markets that rather than representing individual ownership, represent that flow mm. and those markets interpenetrating everything. And as such, if we truly build a set of formal mechanisms of markets that rather than representing that in individual, or I even prefer the word atomized ownership, instead represent that process of flow, then in fact, it's precisely the prevalence of those markets that sweep away the individualism care or atomized individualism carried by existing markets, which I think is the often the concern of the left. Yeah. And, and I think we should kind of pick this thread back up after we've gone through um, your actual you know, cost um, tax model, because it is really interesting how the, the psychological landscape changes. But maybe before digging into that, I wanted to zoom in on on the social dividend element of uh, of the program right one of the one of the outcomes of implementing your tax model um, is to establish a social, uh, social dividend and what i think is really interesting about the way you framed it is you know this is kind of a cousin of a universal basic income right but uh, it's, it's importantly different in a number of key ways. So I wanted to ask you first about... And by the way, I've moved away from the universal basic income being the appropriate use of this quite mm. a bit. I, I'm increasingly negative on universal basic income as being the right way to think about what we do with the relevant mm. uh, proceeds of this or, or even other uh, taxes. Does, so does that include the social dividend as well? Yeah, I don't really think we should have a social dividend. I don't think that that's the right way to think about things. Mm. I think the right way to think about things is the provision of a variety of public goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think that that is precisely how decommodification everywhere it's been achieved, you know, especially in Scandinavia, has worked. It has not worked as a practical matter through cash transfers. There are very few cash transfers in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. which I think is quite fascinating given that it seems like the people advocating most strongly decommodification don't seem to have actually looked at the places where it's actually been achieved as a practical matter. That's so that's interesting. So what, what function to change your mind there? Was it looking around at kind of the experimental results of cash transfers? It was part of it was sort of theoretical advances and part of it was learning about the Scandinavian system and how it works. I think it was those two things converging with each other. That's interesting. One of the, kind of uh, lines of thought in terms of the Scandinavian models that I've come across a lot is that, you know, on one hand, um, they certainly do provide public goods much better than we do. um, And they're often kind of held up as kind of one way in which capitalism can be conceived, right? This kind of, uh, it's been called welfare capitalism or so on. So how do you see um, those kind of Scandinavian models? Are they just these kind of optimal forms of capitalism that manage to provide, you know, social programs to help those who are not really riding um, the growth or do they move beyond that? Well, I, I, I think um, it's a little hard to figure out where capitalism ends and something beyond capitalism right. begins. So at some point it becomes quite semantic, but I do think that there are some of the most successful societies in the world And I think what makes them so successful is precisely not that they rely on cash transfers. Instead, they rely on, or not universally available, broadly community available public services supplied by a diversity 
of uh, organizations, uh, labor unions, uh, local communities, etc. And that participation in this range of communities, rather than the individualistic, independent, I go off and do my own thing, vision often promoted by universal basic income advocates, is what allows people to actually uh, transcend the rat race of the market mm-hmm. um, or of the market as typically conceived of. And it is precisely not by escape from or release from other social relations, but actually being more tightly embedded within a network of them that the individual really is able to be free. Mm. Yeah. So I wonder, I don't know, this might feel kind of retrogressive for you to kind of comment on on a previously held idea, but I wanted to bring this up and, and just see how you had dealt with it or what you thought about it. Because what I found so interesting about this framing of the social dividend as opposed to a basic income was, you know, where often a universal basic income is framed as um, having some kind of assessed level. So whether we pin it to poverty levels or $1,000 a month, whatever it is, we decide on the payout rate and then figure out how to fund that. Whereas your model was very much about um, having a, an equitable and, and good way to distribute the revenues from your tax model. So what, what mattered and the real kind of meat of the thing was the, the property taxes from your cost model. And the social dividend was just a way to distribute that. And uh, I, I really liked this kind of inversion of the logic of rather than arbitrarily choosing some kind of level that we're going to pay and then figure out how to make the funding match that is that you have, you have a model that is predicated upon how the tax you know, benef- benefits society in terms of reshaping incentives. And then just the best way to distribute that was in the social dividend model. But I really like that, that point of kind of getting beyond the arbitrarily assessed payout level. How did you, how'd you think about that? Well, first of all, that I still do think is a good aspect of the ideas, uh, even if I don't think that the precise social dividend is exactly the right way to pay it mm-hmm. out. Because I think that the fundamental principle is not that there is some required standard of living that everyone must have. Of course, that's evolved over time. Our definitions of poverty have evolved over time. And I think the fundamental thing that we are concerned about is not poverty elimination or giving people some specified standard of living, but justice Mm -hmm. in the uh, allocation of the power within our society. Um, the, the problem is fundamentally one of what I would call Democrat or what Elizabeth Anderson really would call democratic equality, mm-hmm. that there is oppression and injustice in the control over power. And that that is what we need to solve uh, with these new systems, not some purely material thing. It's, it's an issue of legitimacy not one of bread. You know, uh, Hannah Arendt famously said, if you ask for bread, you'll get bread. That's how the French Revolution got. If you ask for legitimacy, you might get legitimacy. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that that ties in to uh, to a bit from the Radical Exchange. Uh, I think I think it was a mission statement or a writing on the political philosophy that I think is really relevant to this. There was a sentence on the website that read, uh, "Private ownership is economically incoherent because of the collective nature of value creation in modern economies." And this idea, I think, is really important that the the nature of how value is created today is is in this kind of fundamentally different space than this kind of linear. Um, single kind of monopoly capture of value. So I, w- I wanted to ask about the way in which we're trying to reckon with the collective nature of value creation um, in the economy, right? This is this is something that I think Mariano Mazzucato has been contributing a lot to, right? Asking us to really consider what is value. And if value is this kind of collectively produced thing, how do we, how do we acknowledge that formally within our institutions? And I think that's something that that your model is doing a lot. So how do, how do you think about that kind of collective nature of value versus older ideas? Well, so the, the collective nature of value, I think has, has been pretty well recognized by socialists for a long time. Uh, you know, Noam Chomsky once said that anarcho-syndicalism, which he advocated is just the application of the principle of classical liberalism to a modern industrial economy, because classical liberalism says the things that we have to do collectively should be democratically governed and other things should be left up to the freedom of the individual. Mm. And I think that principle at some level is quite well understood. The problem has been that the formal systems that we've constructed to actually instantiate that have involved concentrating power in the hands of a very small number of people and have not been actually democratically accountable to their relevant constituencies. And that's given them a very bad name. That's given forms of socialism a very bad name. Mm-hmm. And no one really knows what a socialist society would would look like. Right. Um, and I think that's the, the fundamental problem that we face. What radical exchange is trying to do is to give formalisms for actually making sense of what, th- what that could be. Yeah. And, and maybe that's a good time to kind of move into the ways in which you're trying to formalize it uh, by by looking into one of the the kind of dimensions of policy that radical exchange is, is putting out. Um, so that's the the common ownership self-assessed tax. And it, it's really interesting because the, the roots of this go back to Henry George and his land value tax. Um, so I wanted to ask you maybe by way of introducing this idea, if you could kind of trace that evolution from Henry George's land value tax to what you've come up with, with the common ownership, or we can call it a cost. Yeah. So we're now calling it salsa or self-assessed, self-assessed licenses sold at auction. Nice. Uh, So the idea is that owners of an asset, let's call it radio spectrum, um, currently have a lease on that asset, either an indefinite lease or over a fixed period of time. Under this system, instead, they would self-assess the value of the asset and pay a tax on that self-assessed value, but have to stand ready to sell that asset to, let's say, anyone, though maybe that's not quite the right phrase, maybe people within a given community who are willing to pay that uh, price for the asset. And so what this does is it ensures that they are truthful in the valuation of the asset um, and that the asset is always available to be reallocated to others who might value it more, at least within that community. So you basically wind up 
renting property from the collective as opposed to just just owning it straight out. And not just renting it, but renting it in a way where it's always available to be uh, to change ownership and where the rent adjusts to uh, match the value of those who currently uh, possess the asset. Yeah. And, and how far do you see this going? Because it's gone, you know, a number of iterations. I know in the book, it, it went all the way down to you were talking about heirlooms. So h- how, how have you thought about how far that logic extends in terms of, of what property is included and what isn't? Well, um, I think ultimately, I do believe it should extend to as many assets as possible. However, um, the exact form that it takes, I think, is something that's very much um, evolving and uncertain in many ways, uh, because it's not at all clear that there should be a single community that is the one that is thought of as the relevant partial owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you could imagine a system like this beginning with, let's say, a private or local community that grants access to participate in the system only to people within that community and that takes the tax revenues not as a global variable, but to fund their local public good provision. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine there being many communities like that and maybe not even separate, separable ones, but ones that overlap with each other. And you can imagine there actually being this kind of web of partial common ownership stakes and systems that sort of interlace with each other and that together provide a range of goods. That I think is a much more plausible way for this to come into pass and probably a more desirable one um, than is some top-down imposition of it. And in that world, I do think eventually, you know, very many things should be included in some common property system, but exactly what the shares are and at what different levels and at what levels of aggregation you buy things like do you buy out a whole town or do you just buy out the individual pieces of property within the town mm-hmm. those options might be available to different elements within the system to different individuals different groups etc yeah and you can see when when you're talking about that how we might see these webs of of, of more local communities is you can really see this the force of decentralization at play, right? And that's something that's very central, I think, to to what you're trying to achieve is how do we decentralize power? And it's really interesting and counterintuitive to think that there's at, at the same time a a decentralization that is occurring because of a partial socialization of ownership, right? These are typically thought of as, as different uh, kind of opposing forces. So ha- can you speak to that? Well, I think that, that that comes precisely because people have misunderstood the what individualism really is. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful sociologist named Georg Zimmel who's influenced my thinking a tremendous amount. And he um, argues that um, the ultimate source of the individual is not something pre-social to which we need to return, mm-hmm. but instead that individual, that human beings do not exist in quote, the state of nature as individuals. They exist in the state of nature instead, um, as members of a tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and their whole life is within that tribe. Their production is in that tribe. Their consumption is that tribe. Their family and child rearing are all within that tribe. And really what allows the concept of the individual to emerge, which is a great concept, is not 
stripping away things, but rather the addition of social complexity that comes in cities, which makes it so that different aspects of our lives can be mediated by different social groups rather than all by a single tribe, right? Mm -hmm. And so really it is social complexity. It is the existence of all these different social groups that even allows the individual to come into existence. And when you hear someone talking about, oh, I'm going to liberate the individual, what they actually mean is that they're going to strip away all the other social contexts and leave your only social context as whatever thing, whether it be the blockchain or you know the nation state that is, is saying that it's going to take all these things away. So the reality is that actually atomized individualism is really just a cloak for totalitarianism. Mm. And the only thing that allows for true individualism is the complexity and diversity of social organizations. And so, yes, it is. if you want to have decentralization, the only way to have it is through diverse collective organization. Yeah, that's that's right on another theme that keeps coming up is, is kind of the interaction between economics and complexity. And one of one of the ways that I that I've been thinking about neoliberalism is that it was kind of a first attempt at at implementing this idea of designing for emergence of designing for the economy as a complex system. Because if you, if you go back to Hayek, right, Hayek was so enamored with markets, like we said, because he was so into this decentralized information processing. So w- what did we what can we take from that period in terms of and, and you mentioned this a little bit of having democracy and markets interpenetrate one another um, to to really kind of give a fuller effect of each, right? But I, I'm really into this this idea of thinking about the economy as a complex system and what does that mean? Um, we're seeing this occur on, on all kinds of fronts, even um, methodologically, and I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but they're, you know, actually rewriting the models and the equations that uh, that underlie a lot of the economic discipline, and exploring, you know, what this means, what are the policy implications and so on. But I, I really like this idea of one of the ways in which we, we have to think about the 21st century moving forward, where to go is to enable as much as we can, or perhaps as radically as we can, um, economies to allow for emergence and decentralized complexity and, and so on. So has complexity explicitly factored in, factored into how you've been thinking about all these design questions? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the biggest problems with the standard neoliberal framework is that it is optimal as a way of facilitating exchange among atomized individuals. One way you can think about it is in an analogy to mathematics, is that the market, as standardly conceived, lays out sort of a grid on which people can operate. But once you realize that, in fact, there are many different forms of markets, there's all different types of rules. You know, you read about the Chinese system and from here it's perceived as, oh, well, there's all this copycat, there's all this central control. There it's precisely the reverse. It's like, no, no, we have truly competitive system. You guys have all this like, you know, protectionist controls against intellectual property and so forth. Right. So all these different markets are different versions of the market. But once you realize that, you realize that, oh, actually, what the market needs to facilitate is not a single grid on which everything is laid out, but actually that it needs to facilitate the possibility that subparts of that grid actually become different types of markets. 
And then the markets inside of that facilitate subparts of them becoming different types of markets. And in fact, what a firm is, is not a hierarchy, but a different set of rules and a different culture within which an internal market, which creates internal divisions and different set of rules exists. You see what I mean? Yeah, right. And so, and so it's that idea of multi-level structure, which I think is central to complexity that is neglected in the design of standard market systems. Mm. And that's interesting. One of the one of the terms that's used a lot, I think, in this space that that I've seen radical exchange embrace, but also kind of critique in a certain way is this idea of mechanism design. So I wonder if you could just unpack what mechanism design means in this context. So mechanism design is both a abstract idea and a concrete research agenda. And both have influenced the ideas here, though I've increasingly thought come to think that the concrete instantiation in the research agenda has a lot of problems with it. Mm. But the abstract idea is basically to think of social institutions as things that could be fundamentally rearranged and, you know, possibly optimized or quasi optimized or, you know, uh, changed to achieve certain goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's the broad idea of it. Now, it's specifically mechanism design, you know, comes out of the work of a man named William Vickery. And uh, he had a particular way of formulating that problem. And it carries with it a lot of baggage of standard economics um, that maybe is not necessary for all versions of mechanism design, but was critical to what he uh, actually did. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's interesting because, when I think about kind of what you were saying in terms of uh, what we learned from the illiberal markets and, and how we can better design them today and the kind of multi-scale emergence, it, it, it's very much about moving away from this kind of high modernist idea of, you know, knowing where we're going and designing for a particular tract of progress or particular type and, and uh, outcome of development. And it seems much more about designing processes or technologies or institutions that we can trust to just let it all happen, right? We have to kind of release that that uh, craving I think we have to to know where things are going and rather design those institutions that we can just release and trust the process that it'll happen more organically. Yes. And in order to do that, we do have to know something about the process because of course the Hayekian idea was precisely that sort of thing. But in the process of doing that, it actually assumed a lot that was wrong about what it means for us to allow things to emerge. So it's always going to be the case that we need to allow most of the action to emerge. And it's the case that we need to learn some key truths about the system and design to allow those truths to manifest themselves if you want to make um, it possible for the types of systems that you're looking for to emerge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe I'd like to go back. Um, I didn't want to touch this in the beginning because I think if, I, if we spoke about eliminating all taxes on capital, we might lose half of our audience. But part of the program, at least as it was, I'd be curious if it's evolved. But if a successful implementation of salsa, right, would raise enough revenue, as I, as I read, to displace all other taxes on capital, right? So 
corporate yeah. taxes, capital gains, so on. And it does this because, right, it has another mechanism that's funding uh, public goods. So generally, right, progressive taxes are proposed in order to do just that, to fund these things. Um, so I wonder if you can elaborate on this, on what it would mean and kind of what happens in terms of the evolution of society by eliminating tax- taxes on capital. Have you found that kind of progressive leaning economists are open to the idea if we manage to get the revenue coming out of salsa? Well, look, th- th- this is because we um, nationalized two thirds of the capital stock kind of in the original proposal. Now, mm. I, I, I think my current views probably would go even further in terms of what part of the capital stock should be in some way common, but on the other hand, would not want it mostly to be done at the national level. Mm-hmm. So I think all, all well, you know, the vast majority of wealth should be in some way common. And yet I think the vast majority of wealth should not be owned by a nation state. It should be in some way, the common property of a range of communities in an overlapping manner. And then eliminating taxes on capital, you know, taxes are just a way of instantiating ownership. And this is a much more thoughtful complete way of instantiating ownership than our standard taxes, which, you know, are very hard to enforce, are, you know, require a large hierarchical bureaucracy to make work, Mm -hmm. etc. So I think this is a much better way of staking a common claim on capital uh, than is the standard uh, approaches which just lead to endless evasion, huge numbers of jobs for wealthy lawyers. You know, my uncle actually, you know, makes who actually he's the one who has the place up near you, uh, mm-hmm. and he has a gorgeous place. And the reason he has a gorgeous place up near you on you know acres and acres of land is because of the wild inefficiency of the capital taxation system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because. You know, one of the long-running uh, tensions in in capitalist economies is this kind of conflict between capital and labor, and this is one of the things that you point to, and that I think we can look at in terms of long-term changes. Uh, what happen is you're going to kind of erode this kind of perennial problem within um, uh, political economics. So how how does that kind of dissolve away that that tension between capital and labor? And also, I even wonder what would take its place. Yeah. So currently. Labor is owned in a much more diffuse way than capital is, and so, you know, labor has tended to be the certainly not completely equal. We know that some people earn far higher salaries than others do, but much of inequality, maybe even most of inequality, has actually come not from inequality in labor income, but from the fact that capital income is so much more concentrated than labor income is and earns a significant share of the economy. And so, you know, so much has been formulated as trying to give more power to labor and and maybe rightly so. But if capital comes to be more commonly owned, more broadly owned than labor does, then the whole dynamics could completely reverse. And in fact, the leading source of inequality could come to be people's labor income, at least for a time. Though, Presumably, then new social change would emerge to try to address that problem. Right. Yeah, and digging more into kind of like forecasting what could happen. You you mentioned previously this kind of connection between Buddhism and uh, and, and your vision, and specifically on loosening our notions of of ownership and and property ownership. 
one one of the ways that I think about what economics is, or more broadly socioeconomics, because there's it's very difficult to untangle the two, is that it, it's very much about designing the conditions for human development to occur. Right? It's very much kind of an educational program of the the way in which uh, society is designed, our material environments, all our, our social realities. These things right create the context or the environments in which uh, human beings develop. Right? So I, I wonder how ideas of human development have factored into the way in which you think about what kinds of institutions we should be designing for? Well, I, I don't think they factored in enough, but increasingly I've been reading a lot of John Dewey. Oh, nice. And he's a fascinating uh, person on this score and actually a follower of Henry George's. Hmm. So it's a um, very uh, nice resonance. Yeah. Um, and Dewey uh, puts a huge amount of emphasis on the this diverse um, social nature of our lives, um, and that child development is really about uh, helping people to reconcile the diversity of the social groups that make them an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly not something that I have sufficiently reflected on or educated myself uh, on, but I think that Dewey's vision of education probably has a great deal to do with uh, what we're trying to achieve in radical exchange. And I hope that my own understanding of it will continue to grow. I think, you know, the most important thing I took away from Dewey was the fact that communication is so fundamental to human life that we can't think of our desires separate from the way in which we communicate them to each other. Mm. Um, And therefore that the purely individualistic sort of vision of utility is not really meaningful. Um, And I think that's really critical to understanding what's wrong with artificial intelligence as a way of thinking about technology, because it's based on this notion of an autonomous system but I don't think that humans are autonomous and I don't think that machines should aspire to be autonomous. And it's precisely in their communication that value arises. Yeah. I, I love that, that, uh, inspiration coming out of Dewey. I'm a big fan of Dewey as well. And uh, as I understand his philosophy, you know, he's very much about education or schooling being about creating environments in which children engage in exploratory behaviors, right. And kind of this idea of play, um, as opposed to uh, coerced activity. And if we if we broaden the notion of education beyond just what occurs in schooling, but kind of what occurs in a social environment, uh, it, it kind of gives rise to this way of thinking about uh, design thinking about um, society and the economy so that how do we set the conditions so that people can increasingly engage in these kind of exploratory behaviors that more closely resemble play than what we might consider labor right now? Does, does that uh, does that mean anything to you when we talk about designing for play as opposed to labor? Is that like a meaningful divide at all? Yeah. Um, I think the the reason why I am a little bit concerned about talking about completely eliminating work is that mm. I think of... So, so the, the key thing to me is that people need to continue to be viewed as valuable to others mm-hmm. and to define themselves in relation to um, social goals. And I think that's critical for Dewey, 
right? Yeah. Um, and perhaps his conception of play, and I, I don't think I understand it fully enough, is very much oriented around that. But mm-hmm. I think the a lot of people who talk about play or decommodification or whatever slip into this thing of I'm going to go off and be a surfer. I'm going to do my thing on my own. Right. Rather than what's going to give me meaning will continue to be being of service to others in some way. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. it doesn't necessarily need to be mediated through money in the traditional sense of money. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Elizabeth Anderson earlier, right? That's, this is one of the concerns she took up. Uh, she wrote a great paper, I think it was in 99, called What is the Point of Equality? And that's, that's kind of her critique of basic incomes, that we don't owe each other the financial freedom to go live as a beach bum. But but it is interesting because in a lot of the discourse on post-work, uh, some forms of basic income and so on, one of the kind of points that always comes down to is what do we think humans in general would do if they were exposed to the conditions that uh, what we might call abundance, right? Conditions where they have what they need. Are we going to kind of slink back and just enjoy it? Or is there still a kind of persistent curiosity that would drive us to to engage in meaningful social relations with one another, right? But I always find that interesting. That's kind of one of the the dividing points on that question is how we believe humans will behave in those conditions. Well, but see, to me, it's a little bit less about how people will behave and a little bit more about what, what would give people the conditions to be able to flourish. Would giving people money do that? Well, I think not because the thing is people would have to use them. I mean, people talk about giving money is like giving people freedom, giving people direct access. I think that's nonsense. Because the thing is that that presupposes that there is such a thing as an efficient market, which then just Mm. produces for people, given a certain amount of money, whatever it is that they want to uh, do with that. That's not reality. What produces uh, people's ability to access goods and services, you don't eat money. It's other people. It's social configurations. And those social configurations can continue to be sources of power and oppression, no matter how much money you, each individual person has. You see what I mean? Right. And yeah. so the, the, the fundamental problem is that it is sociality that gives us the chance to be free. Mm-hmm. And if we treat it as a pure problem of individual purchasing power, we completely miss what's actually necessary to give people those opportunities. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, there, there's a sociologist, Daniel Zamora, and one of the critiques he makes of basic income, or he calls basic income essentially a bioindicator of neoliberalism's progress. And he says that you know UBI is basically a capitulation to neoliberal ideology, just on the lines that you're saying is that it enables no, us no, no, to- I would go further than that. Neo- UBI is neoliberalism. I mean, the notion <laughs> that UBI is anything else is completely absurd. Look, it's UBI is in Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the central ideas in there. Yep. So so the, people just haven't read Milton Friedman and what he was actually advocating. What he was advocating was not the elimination of taxes. What he was advocating was the elimination of common ownership as a way of organizing uh, things. You know, that like he, he actually is a big fan of basic income. Mm-hmm. I mean, like new, basic income is the essence of neoliberalism. And by the way, John Rawls is deeply neoliberal in my view. Mm. 
that that's interesting because John Rawls is usually kind of held up as as right the egalitarian underpinning of, of progressive taxation. Is that, is that oh, true? I mean, you know, Matt Brunig loves you know John Rawls. He's obsessed with John Rawls. John Rawls to me is neoliberal. He's the essence of neoliberalism. Just as I mean, he's very similar to Friedman. Mm. Um, they're they're extremely extremely similar. Um, yeah. They both have this view where there's like this thing called the market and this thing called the abstracted individual. And those are the, 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 you know, two things that matter. And there's this mechanism called the market. And we're just about allocate. Like what, what matters is the power relations that are created by the increasing returns activities that all of us are engaged in by civilization. It's very much Elizabeth Anderson's, you know, uh, uh, worldview. Right. How did, how did you, cause I I've heard, um, you know, you, you kind of grew up associated with socialism and then you kind of went the other way with like Ayn Rand and George Bush how, yeah. was, was your kind of break from this, you know, that line of thinking, was it always percolating or simmering or was there a moment where you finally kind of looked at that general trend of discourse and, and realized that you had to go a completely different direction? Oh, I think it, it was pretty I, you know, I've, I, since I was on those two sides, I saw how inconsistent they were. And I've always been struggling to try to find a way to reconcile them or to move beyond that divide. Um, yeah. However, I didn't really succeed in making that break, you know, until I went through being a PhD in economics, thinking in this very technocratic way, leaving ideologies behind for a period of time. And mm-hmm. just sort of exploring the intellectual space, and then eventually I came back, and 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 you know it was the basis of forming a different sort of an ideology. But it took that sort of period of living in the realm of more pure utilitarian intellect to mm-hmm. really get there. Yeah did you did you find it difficult through through your time at Harvard and studying? Did you find it difficult to kind of? Uh, not impartially, but to, but to really kind of be incubating this this radical strain of of totally checking out of the way things were done, or was it kind of a, a fostering well, environment? I didn't really think of myself as doing it at all at that time. I'd absorbed the value system of the economics technocratic elite discourse, which mm-hmm. very much views itself as anti ideological, as having transcended all those things, et cetera. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. Absolutely. So, so it was only later that I sort of realized how much I had actually been trapped within it. Yeah, and and it's it's great. Even just like on my end, those moments where you're kind of thrust out of the familiar echo chambers, right? And and kind of the most basic things you've taken as, as presuppositions are challenged. It's always such an informative and and valuable process to to be forced to reconsider, right? Like those deepest roots that you've taken for granted. Yeah, um, absolutely. And another way that I think about kind of what you're up to, right? And I'd love to get a get your view on it. But again, this is from the Radical Exchange website. One of the ways you you kind of framed what's going on is that this the sum total of human intelligence applied to the problems of social life would be greater. So one of the directions you're trying to take is shift the balance of kind of human attention and where intelligence gets focused. What problems are we engaging with? Um, mm-hmm. And this is this is one of the ways that I really like thinking about the term progress, right? Because that's an infinitely nebulous term, means all kinds of things. But thinking about progress as this way of shifting the balance of human focus, human activity, human intelligence 
onto these problems of, of social life, or even just more broadly, the problems that, you know, we can always use better solutions, right? That kind of infinite solution space. And one of the ways that I kind of frame one of my critiques of the status quo is that for so many people, right, you have to, they have to spend so much of their lives devoting and, and trading in their time to access kind of solutions to the things we already know how to solve, right? Engaging with the basic problems. Um, and this often just has to do with how much purchasing power do you have. And, and so one of, the, one of the ways I think about progress is creating the conditions so that people can more and more engage in, in these spaces that we don't know how to solve, right? To the problems of social complexity or so on, which, which is all to ask, how do you think about this term of, of what progress is, right? What it means, because there's so much, there's talk of uh, establishing progress studies in academic departments, Tyler Cowen and Patrick Collison were writing about that. And I think it's so important to have an idea of what we mean by progress, because if we don't critically challenge that, Right. It's it's going to just stay in the same track of kind of a, a technocratic, super scientific uh, a mode that I think we need to expand upon. So how do you think about that? Well, I guess I, I think about progress very much in relationship to this almost paradoxical two step move towards our pre technological lives and towards greater scale simultaneously. So. Mm-hmm. And it sounds paradoxical, but if you actually think about the progress of technology, it's very clear how that works. I mean, when you move from the telegraph to the telephone, from the telephone to the radio, from the uh, uh, radio to television, from television to video conferencing, all of these are create forms of long distance, flexible communication that are more and more true to the way in which we live prior to um, the you know creation of technology or in the limited realms that we are able to cross without uh, technologies, right? Mm-hmm. And so that to me is really what progress is about. It's about allowing the richness of our pre-formal lives to uh, propagate much further than it has been allowed to in the past. Mm. Yeah, and using new technologies to do so. Do you think you're talking about how society, kind of the shape of society evolves in tandem with with new technological mediums? Do you, do you think that we've kind of adapted to the internet already? Or do you think that that is something that is yet to kind of really sink into the shape of society? Well, I mean, I think that the internet was a very beautiful vision and it accomplished something, but it was very thin in its representations of our lives. It didn't think about trust and identity. And it it just thought that, you know, a network of networks thing, it was enough to just have information floating around. And I think that's really, it's not nearly uh, enough. (laughs) Um, it's, It's going in that direction. But just as the telegraph was not enough, the the information system of the internet uh, doesn't carry with it the you know the richness that is necessary to make long distance cooperation really possible, and so therefore it you know got colonized effectively by all of these different platforms that provided some of that infrastructure but did it in a very centralized and hierarchical uh, way. That's often what happens 
with various forms of anarchy is uh, as attractive as they might be, they actually uh, open the space for a bunch of much more hierarchical systems to emerge. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when you were talking about kind of how these multi-scale local communities and organizations might come together as the infrastructure in terms of collective ownership, like what supersedes this this dichotomy between the market and the state? And, and I'm trying to imagine like what actually would happen. What are the groups? What are the organizations? What are the infrastructures that would mediate between them? And one of the ways that I, that I think it's difficult to think about that is I suspect that might have a lot to do with kind of further developments of, of networks and the internet and how technology can kind of uh, allow for these different kind of multi-scale communities to arise. But how, how, do, you, how do you think about it or how do you talk about what what those communities would look like that are arising, you know, beyond the dichotomy of, of states managing public goods? Um, well, I think that we would have a whole range of different institutions associated with different public goods in the same way that we have different corporations associated with different things that we're trying to do together. However, mm-hmm. so so in that way, like I think I imagine an ecosystem that bears a lot of resemblance to the ecosystem of companies. Mm. Um, at the same time, I think that they would be as democratic, more democratic than nation states would be. Mm-hmm. So I imagine us all participating in this huge range of different democracies, managing different elements of our lives. I think that that's the sort of a concise version of the, <laughs> the world that I imagine. Yeah. And that, that's a good space to maybe just bring in um, the, the idea of quadratic voting, which has certainly been one of the suggestions you put forward that's really been adopted in a number of contexts and is making a pretty immediate uh, difference. And on the surface, right, for someone who hasn't um, heard about these things before, the idea of, of mixing markets and politics is, is going to scare some people, right? When, when the slogan today is getting money out of politics and we so closely associate money and markets. Um, but one of the things that, that your idea allows for is you keep talking about this kind of allowing for more richness, right? Moving from the telegraph up and so on. And so I, the way I understand quadratic voting is that it's trying to give us the ability to communicate uh, more information about our preferences. So how, how do you kind of pitch or, or explain the idea of quadratic voting, especially to people who think, you know, what we should be doing is further separating markets and politics? Well, I think there's a superficial and then a deep response. I think the superficial response is that you just, this is a separate currency. All that we're doing is giving people, you know, the ability to use their, their votes on the things that are most important to them. So we're giving them more democratic freedom, more capacity to defend minority rights, et cetera. But I think the deeper response is that we should eventually aim for a world in which instead of money, what we have is voice. But instead of our voice being equal in all circumstances, it speaks to different aspects of the world, and we each have the ability to sort of opt into using our voice in mm. different contexts that we each want to take responsibility for, so that mm-hmm. we have a sort of pervasive politics, but a politics characterized by the type of division of labor that we usually associate with the market. 
That so, and how would we kind of provision access to, or how would people get access to without money and with voice credits uh, to things like you know paying rent or access to food or so on? Is our voice credits are you thinking involved in that process? Well, I think everything would be in some form basically a public good mm. on the one hand, but on the other hand, people would each belong to different ranges of public good providing entities. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the reality is right now, the way we get access to things is mostly not private. You know, most of what creates the value of my apartment is that it's so well connected to New York City by public Mm -hmm. transportation, which is a public good in in a town that is maintained by a city. You see what I mean? And so, so rent that's just one way of organizing a market for the access to housing. And ultimately what we want is not access to housing. We want access to housing near a city. So really mm-hmm. the main thing that's providing that housing is not the building. That's a very tiny fraction. I mean, what it costs to build is, is a 10th, a 20th, a hundredth maybe of the value of where I live. Most of it is the public goods that I have access to. Right. Um, so, so it's really the terms of access to those public goods that is relevant, not uh, the building. Uh, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, right, right, right. Th- that's one of those places. It's so fun and it's so difficult to imagine uh, h- how we would organize ourselves absent, absent of income, right? Absent these kind of ideas we have now of how society organizes itself. And that's, you know, I think that's part of the illusion of uh, I don't know what it is, maybe human perception, but you know that that fallacy where we mistake the way things are now for the way they are always going to be. Whereas yeah. if you you zoom out long enough on a historical timeline, things are in pure flux always. Right? That's that's the only thing that's happening is things are changing. Yeah. Um, and this is I think this is part of that broader challenge of, of radical exchange on the whole is kind of operating against that tendency. Um, or that kind of rigidity we have in breaking out of of the familiar and the institutions we're we're close to, and imagining actually playing, maybe not a causal role, but having taking agency in the way that things evolve from here. But that's um, the reason why art is so central to radical exchange. That's why our CEO mm-hmm. is an artist, not an economist, because uh-huh. what we most need is imagination. The truth is that the solutions, once we're able to imagine better, you know, they play a critical role, but the most central condition for progress is being able to imagine things. And, and, you know, the main role the solutions play is in helping us to imagine by concretizing, you know, the imagination. It's like in Star Trek, the, the replicator helps us to imagine a decommodified future, Right. Um, in the same way, radical exchange ideas help us to more completely imagine what it would be like to live in this future, uh, of diversely shared common goods. That's yeah. I I love that bringing in the, the kind of value of art in this project. It makes me think of the evolution that's taken place. Uh, if you, if you look back, for example, to, I was reading Nick um, Chernesek and Alex Williams' book, Inventing the Future, and they have a, a chapter where they document how kind of the group of thinkers that constituted, you know, the neoliberalism 
uh, set the conditions for it to arise. Like they were meeting um, under the Mont Pelerin Society back in the 30s and the 40s, and they were asking the questions of how do we propagate our ideas in a sustainable way um, and and scale them all up. And so they were interacting with you know journalists and academics and all these different societal mediums, which are essentially operating top down, trying to feed people direct ideas. And what I really like about the the way I hear you talking about art and radical exchange is rather than kind of taking over think tanks and and telling people how to think, it's very much about giving people a way to experience these things organically, how to kind of break them out of these more stagnant uh, modes of perception and watch a film or engage with, with whatever kind of piece of artwork it may be to have an organic experience. And if the ideas have merit, you would think that these organic experiences are going to converge on the ideas, right? So you kind of, it's yeah, almost exactly. like a, a matching Absolutely. mechanism. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Uh, so how have you, how have you been bringing, bringing um, people who are, who are artists in? Is it actually like with the design of a lot of, of, of the platforms or just having them kind of, make films or, or paintings based on that? How do, how do you actually engage that? Well, our goal is to create something that we call the Marvel comic universe meets the communist manifesto. Nice. Because we believe that, you know, the communist manifesto and other Marxist documents, this is really a Gramsci point, mm. uh, were so elite in their orientation that they created a politics that was inimical to the theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and to avoid that, what we need is a multi vantage point culture, one that can be seen from the perspective of rigorous economics, but can also be seen from the perspective of uh, political philosophy and from the perspective of memes and from the perspective of narratives. You know, you think of the Marvel comic universe, there's Black Panther, there's Spider-Man, there's all these different ways of looking at what it is. And yet somehow they're all vantages onto the same object. Mm. And that I think has to be the essence of radical exchange culture, which is consistent with a radical exchange politics only Mm. by having all of these different perspectives, which somehow all are perspectives on the same thing. Can we allow for a bunch of different equally privileged viewpoints to converge to create the culture that we want? Hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it kind of harkens back to Dewey, right? In terms of create these rich and, and kind of multi-form environments where people can have their own kind of autonomously driven experiences um, but it, but it gives rise to some patterns and uh, some some convergence in, in in ways of thinking and so on. That that's a really that's a that's a really elegant idea. That's that's really interesting. I'm excited to watch that unfold. Uh, that's how, yeah. I mean, it'll be a it'll be quite a project. And unfortunately, you know, there's been so much interest in these ideas, or you know, fortunately or unfortunately, um, <laughs> there's been so much interest in these ideas from um, policymakers from quote the practical world. Mm. that we've really, I think, fallen badly behind in terms of the focus that we've placed and should place on uh, this artistic side. But hopefully we'll find an equilibrium where I don't have to devote quite as much of my time to that sort of thing. And I can instead (laughs) do what I think is most important, which is work on creating 
that multi-perspectival culture that will make uh, all of this uh, really work. Right. Well, what do you think would happen if, because this is very much about creating an environment that that's larger than just your own thinking, right? Radical exchange yeah, isn't uh, beholden to your ideas. So what happens if you create this kind of mix of the Marvel universe and the communist manifesto and all of these different people are engaging with it. And all of a sudden you see the project going a direction that's like antithetical to the principles that you had founded it upon. Well, I, um, I think that the, the correct culture that I would like to create would itself instantiate mm. um, the, the spirit of the ideas. And right. so would thus tend to create the condition for the ideas to succeed. You know, mm. that doesn't mean that there won't be new ideas, but hopefully there'll be ideas that, that move beyond the current ones rather than that are opposed to them, you know, in right. some sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it really comes down to that balance. I think like you're talking about of you create an environment that embodies the spirit of the ideas. And then kind of, as we were saying before, and then you kind of have to let go and let it happen, right? It's going to emerge out of your hands. It's going to. Yeah. I, I actually think the most plausible way to make things go in an, in a direction that is antithetical to the ideas is to try to directly and without any additional input, implement the ideas. Mm, because yeah. it's precisely then, you know, that's how you end up in the situation that Marxism ended up in. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and that's interesting too, because that's one of the things that I saw you do that was so interesting is your the Radical Markets, the book, I think it came out in 2018, is that correct? Yeah. And and about a year later, you, you published this essay, um, Why I'm Not a Technocrat, well, and I'm and about you, to publish a direct critique of radical exchange, uh, radical markets as well. Right, exactly. You're 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 critiquing yourself, which is itself kind of showing these ideas are evolving real time, and that that yeah. that's such a vital point in that process. That was really cool to see. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's pretty good. That's that's a pretty good ending point. Is there is there anything that kind of remains for you you want to get out there that was lingering on the mind? Well, I hope if people are interested in this stuff that they'll engage with the community. They can find it at Radical Exchange dot radical x lowercase x change dot org they can also uh find us at, at radical exchange on twitter would you still recommend people read the book or are you kind of moved on from the book i think the book has a lot to offer but i think that a lot of the essays online have a lot to offer as well on the mm -hmm. radical exchange blog a lot of them are quick quicker and also more up to date um but it really depends on you know, what cultural perspective you're coming from, you know, the political philosophy of radical exchange is very much a political philosophy tract. So if that's the sort mm -hmm. of thing that attracts you, I would recommend it to you. Um, you know, there's other things that appeal more to technologists. And I think that, you know, the book is very much written for sort of readers of The Economist magazine. So if you're a reader of The Economist magazine, it's probably the best starting point for you. Yeah, and, and I would I would echo to anyone interested as well that uh, turning to the book, I mean, it was incredibly valuable for me to read. And you can kind of see it in the spirit we've been talking about where treat it as an environment that's meant to provoke, right? So it's something that provokes ideas. Um, and it's not necessarily reading it just to come to the same conclusion. It's it's reading it to kind of shake up the presuppositions that we, we take for granted and a way to kind of bring in more creative approaches to how we organize ourselves. That's certainly 
that's certainly what I got out of it. And I really appreciated it. Well, and that's what it did. Writing it did that for me. So, mm, yeah, uh, I guess what happened is you transferred that. That's a successful book then, right? <laughs> transferred that experience. I hope so. Okay. If you made it this far, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I have links up on the episode page to some of the Radical Exchange blog posts that summarize the project, as well as more of Glenn's work and relevant links that we mentioned throughout the conversation. I am very grateful that Glenn took the time to speak with me. Uh, Oddly enough, we connected because I was posting a Twitter thread about some of his work and he got in touch through that. He saw that. Um, which just shows how valuable Twitter can be and also how helpful it is for the podcast. If you enjoy an episode to share it on platforms like Twitter, right? This is how I wind up getting connected with people doing the kind of work that this podcast exists to explore. On, on a personal note, I'm in a transitional phase of my life right now and I'm testing the waters to see how far I can take this podcast right? How much of my time I can realistically hope to invest in it and to see whether it might become something more than just a hobby or a passion project that I do when I get home from work, right? In my, in my ideal world, this podcast and the writing would both be the work that I come home from. Um, so if you've listened to a few episodes and you have any thoughts or suggestions or criticisms, uh, any feedback is really helpful as I figure out how to see if this project can expand and improve. Um, And of course, if you'd like to support the show directly, you can become a monthly patron. Um, Next episode, I'll be speaking with economic anthropologist Gustav Peebles. He's a professor at the New School in New York, and he wrote one of the most fascinating essays on Adam Smith that I've ever read. And we really just had a, a wonderful conversation. So I really look forward to releasing that soon. And that's that's all I have. So uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you next time.